Let's go back to, to what we, we have in Moikum, which is the day of Shavuos, the day after Shavuos. And we've explored it through a whole lot of different ways, some rational, intellectual, and others more on the self-development side of things. What, what we were saying previously was that there's an element of knowledge normal, rational, intellectual knowledge that there was, an, there was a historical event that occurred in the year 1312 of the, before the Common Era upon which there was a what was called a national revelation and that event occurred and that event was captured by the witnesses and conveyed to their descendants. And then we had a discussion, we began a discussion, if that's considered reliable information. But underlying the discussion, we uncovered a deeper issue. And the deeper issue is, well, what role does intellectualized knowledge play in, in our life? And why is it a relevant factor when dealing with the spiritual world? And what we proposed was that Judaism, perhaps distinct to many other religions, focuses on an integration between spirituality and rationality. Not because things have to make sense because they have to make sense, because you have to satisfy some type of inquisitive Western scientific mind. But rather because of what we say in the Shema, Shema Yisrael Hashem Hashem Echad, that there's a unity in creation whereby everything has to be cohesive with everything else. There can't really be parts of creation which don't fit in snugly with others. And since the man was created, apart from his right side of his brain, the creative, the exploratory, the, the one that sees the gestalt and intuits, he was also given the left side of his brain, which is the rational, the analytic that understands the sequences, is able to process and evaluate information. And the oneness and unity of Torah wants us to express our spiritual connection through both sides of our being. It should be a rational and an intuitive experience. And not that the intuition should contradict the rationality. And therefore, for that reason, the experiences that we have of spirituality on its deepest plane need to be translated into a cogent reality. And when the reality flies in the face of our spiritual experience, so then there's something very wrong. It contradicts. For example, if you read a mission Pekka Ovis, which describes a, a movement of emotional self, and you say, well, that's not true, I do, that doesn't work, it's not a wide experience, so then there's something that's unresolved. Now, because we have a emuna, or let's say because I have, because I have, my relationship to Torah is such that when that happens to me, and what the words of the sages say conflicts with the experience of my reality, so I have the faith to, to, to know for myself. I know that I'm not understanding what they're saying. Or else I've missed the point of reality. But it's impossible that those two things can conflict. Because it's all one world. It's all one world that's, that's generated and 
and manifested by the Creator. So that, that leads into something which is really the, the topic of Matan Torah. That's just a, 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 almost a caveat. But the topic of Matan Torah is essentially the topic of change. And we began this discussion, I think we have to revisit it perhaps with a little bit more of a broader knowledge. It's the, what the Rabbeinu Yoyna describes of the instantaneous change. That how long does change take? How long does it cha- take for a person to change? So the way the Rabbeinu Benyoni puts it across, he says, In one small moment, you change in a second, in an instant. And then we said, well, you know, that contradicts our reality, which is in true, in true, in the true spirit of what we said previously, is that, well, you, you know, you can't change in a second. Every person that, that works with people undergoing change always tells them baby steps, incremental growth, don't try to do everything at once. So what's this you can change in a second? Change in a second. So what we began discussing, and I think it's a very important discussion to have, is that there's levels of persona and there's levels of change. The externality of a person, your behavior patterns, your thought processes, even though let's say thought processes are perhaps more internal than your behavioral patterns, nevertheless they still aren't the essential self. You're not your deepest value, your core value, your essence, your being. So those things, when you understand, let's say, for example, on an intellectual level, which is further away than your core, of, let's say, the intuition and the feeling, if you understand intellectually that something should be done, so that's, uh, in terms of... Affecting change, that's not the strongest kind of change and it's not the most solid form of change and it certainly can't be done instantaneously because there's a deeper part of self which is the will, the rotson. So you can have an understanding of something and a comprehension of something but if it conflicts with where the will wants to go so it won't really help. The Gemara parodies it by saying that Yodim Rishoyim Rishayim know that they're going to a dead end. They're aware of that fact, but they don't stop. Many people are cognizant of self-destructive behavior. Many people, all of that, not many people, every single person in this room engages in some form of self-destructive behavior. And if we sit down and I would say to you, you know, it's not healthy to, whatever, to eat high-calorie, high-fat foods not healthy. I don't think it's anyone in the world that says it's healthy. Any nutritional expert. So why do you do it? Do you realize it's not healthy? Yes, I realize it's not healthy. So why do you do it? Uh, come up with a rationalization. Can't. It's inconvenient. Okay, but it's, it's not healthy. So we all know that there's self-destructive behavior that we engage in. I'm not talking about more deeper, deeper bad habits of interaction, of social, of understanding of self, of how you deal with relationships and etc etc there we all have parts of us which engage in negative behavior so why isn't it just about singing the person down and saying listen you're doing this this and this and this and it's really not constructive so could you please stop it person has a hard time waking up in the morning you say listen do you realize that if you wake up in the morning late it really starts you off on the wrong foot in your day and you also it's, it's time wasting and it goes, oh, oh no, gosh, I didn't know that. Oh, okay, well now, now, now I wake up early. 
Next morning, he opened up his eyes, and it's 6.30, and his alarm's ringing, and he thinks to himself, well, I really shouldn't start today, because I had a late-ish night last night, and if I sleep well today, I'll have a proper sleep tonight, and I'll be able to wake up properly tomorrow. So he switches off the alarm, wakes up at 9, and feels terrible that he failed. Doesn't work, right? You can always gauge the feeling of it doesn't work. But the next day he says, that's it. Tomorrow morning I'm waking up at 6.30. And the next morning he wakes up at 6.30 and he says, well, the reason why I'm so tired today is because I slept in so late yesterday. But today I'm just going to sleep in until 7.30. And then he wakes up at 9. And this pattern keeps on perpetuating itself. So, so you see that the fact that you, that you know something, in other words, the intellectual, intellectual knowledge is really on the surface of our beings and it doesn't really changes and may open us, make us aware of change. But the real change happens on a core, essential point. So that's what the, the Rabbeinu Yoni is speaking about in the Derech Hashishis, in Oisud, in Shashani, when he discusses this, this transformation that a person has when he hears something. Kasha Yishma Musar Chachamim A person goes to a lecture. Yakshi Yishma V'yikona Yakshiv, he listens. Vayishma, he doesn't only listen. And then he hears. Now the word Shma, in Aramaic is called Kabel, he receives. And then what happens once he's received it? Vayikona. Then he becomes humbled. And then what happens afterwards? So let's list the stages. There's a Hakshava, which is a listening. Then there's stage two is a hearing. Stage three is a humility. And stage four is and he goes back to a deeper part of self. And then number five is He integrates the words inside of his being. And he knows that he won't do anything that contradicts what he's just understood. That's called an epiphany. He has an epiphany. He has a moment where everything just makes sense. And he doesn't think it. It starts off by listening, hearing, humbling, tshuva, a new heart. A new heart means a new essence. So... And then the Rabbeinu Yoni goes on to say that that was the moment, that was the experience of Sinai. That the Jewish people as a global whole experienced that process whereby at that point in time there was an internal transformation where they became aligned to the vision of Hashem. And he says that's why they're considered men whose actions exceed their wisdom. Because when they reached that level of commitment internally the actions they had not yet done were considered done because the only difference between them being done and not done was the opportunity to do them. But there was no other barrier interrupting them and the, and the implementation. They had essentially done everything that they would do in the future. They had recreated their sense of self. So now, the way I would phrase it is as follows. In this room we have people that are coming from a variety of different backgrounds. And I believe many of you are committed to Jewish life. Is that correct? How many of you think that in 10 years' time from today, you'll still be mitzvah observant? 
You're not sure. Yeah, I don't know. You don't know. You think you are. I know. You know. You hope so, okay? Josh? You hope so, you have no idea. Modcha? Yeah, Yoffi? You're on? Adam? I don't really know what it means to be a mitzvah observer. Good. Ash? Okay, so I'll put it out like this then. I'm not nearly as confident as those of you who are confident are. Um, to say that you may not be, so maybe that's t- too strong, but to say that you will be, it, it could be for a variety of different reasons that there's, there's a strong chance you won't be. Why? Well, there's a few reasons. First of all, the environmental reasons. Let's say you're committed to Judaism. And let's say you spend time studying, growing, and you reach a level of connection and observance and you feel that this is going to carry you forward in life. And then you go and you land a job in a very demanding corporate environment and there's very little time for anything but work. And the work environment is not in any way openly against what you're doing, but in a very subtle way, it's presenting you with a lifestyle which seems so incredibly attractive. People that you connect to and engage in intellectually, that they've got a completely different set of values. And you're in that environment for most of your day, week, and, and year. And then day after day, hour after hour, you're in that environment. So it's hard to imagine that you won't be deeply influenced by it. Now, if you also factor in something else, which is the nature of religious progression. Generally, the way a Balchiva's path looks is that the first stage, whilst the person is growing in the initial stages of Torah, so there's an excitement and there's a newness and there's a, there's a, there's a luster to the experience. And then, things plateau. And the spark dissipates. Now, which is really an invitation to go into a new level and a deeper level. But that's not always happen. that doesn't always happen. So often a person can five years, six years, seven, eight, nine, ten years down the line feel that his religious observance is just a byright exercise, which is pretty boring, and it basically amounts to a set of restrictions that he doesn't feel like doing but does it just because he's come this far. Now that's when there's no other competing forces. But if he's then, in that stage of his development, put into an environment where the forces that are competing are extremely strong, so then the chances of him ditching everything that he did in Yeshiva are extremely large. And the, the word on the street is that that's, an, anecdotally at least, that's, that's what happens to many, many a person that spent time in Yeshiva. That when placed back into his natural habitat, he will often revert to default or change to and doesn't really meet him two, three years after he's been back where he came from or back in a normal inverted common society so he no longer has any vestiges of religious observance left.
So that's, that's interesting. That's interesting. But I think that's a function of how deeply we connect and what is our real connection, how, how fundamental is it. I think that plays a major role. What also plays a major role are two other factors. The one factor is that you see that if a person isn't gay, engaged in constant, sophisticated growth in his Torah Navoida, so the chances are life will overtake your Torah. Imagine if, you, if your level of learning when you leave your Shiva is relatively good. And then because you're an intelligent person, you get a position in, you're an engineer, and you get a highly demanding job in a sophisticated field of engineering. So, and you keep on growing in that field. So very shortly, your level of expertise in your field, of, uh, in your career, will be extremely sophisticated. And your level of understanding in, sto- in Torah will, at best, stagnate, if not descend. So now you're dealing with a really challenging, sophisticated, advanced, engaging intellectual pursuit. And then you go home and you say, a boring parashavot. So what happens is your whole understanding of Torah is subtly undermined because you start to think, well, it really doesn't have that much to offer me. And then, as that persists, so then you start to feel that, that, that je- afterwards, even if a person remains observant, but all that happens is his observance becomes ritualized. It becomes a shell that he just does. Like some people play golf, I go shachris. And just becomes, you do it. You do it every day. Why? Because you did the day before. And especially if a person is married, he just holds it up. But the heart and soul is not there. Joshua. Well, um, from my personal experiences, um, I found that when you connect, when I've connected to Torah, like so you're connecting to that inner uh, part of yourself, as you say, and then a lot of those like outer layers, uh, you start to sort of get rid of, like the negative outer layers, like the defenses that you might have or like the negativity and when those outer layers dissipate and you also becoming more receptive to the environment around you you're becoming you're not so you're not like you're very much you're becoming more almost at one with like you're not you know what i mean not fighting yeah so therefore it's almost like a bit of a paradox because when you like let's say this bowel sugar then connects spends two years in yeshiva connecting to that uh, inner part of himself and then he goes back well it's by virtue of the fact that he underwent that growth that he's now more receptive to that corporate environment that he goes back to so that I find like that's a very big challenge because what's how do you actually you know it's, it's because of the fact that you now connected to your essence and therefore your defenses are down that you're now going to be more susceptible to be influenced by those negative outside. Hmm. Yeah, that's a challenge. So, so, again, the challenge is that how does a person create a sustainability to living an enthusiastic Torah? It shouldn't be that the test that we face is, wow, there's this gloriously tempting world outside there. But all those pleasures are forbidden. So therefore, I'll use my restraint and self-control to constrict myself and be a good boy. That was what Moshe Feinstein commented on the generation of Jews that immigrated to America, that so many of them arrived on the shores completely observant and very shortly afterwards 
if not themselves, but their children. Many of the children of the parents who have completely observant lost all vestiges of religion. And the Moshe commented is because what would happen is the father would go and get a job. And the job would require that you attend the job on a Saturday as well. And he wouldn't turn up on Saturday, so he'd arrive on Monday and get fired. So when you came home that night depressed, you'd go, Ooh, see swear to Zion a yid. Which means it's so difficult to be a Jew. And his children would grow up with him saying how difficult it was to be a Jew. So they said, well, okay, well, if it's so difficult to be a Jew, then why should I be a Jew? In other words, the only long-term hope for a person's continued growth in Torah is the emotional, deeper connection whereby he's nourished and sustained by the process. And that he feels that if you gave him the best of the ultimate lifestyle, it wouldn't, it would pale in comparison with what he has. If you gave him the most exciting and deepest wisdom, it would pale in comparison with what he has. If you gave him the ultimate of everything, it wouldn't even come close to his life. Because his life is charged with energy. It's suffused with joy. It's one daily, by second by second, moment of explosion of inspiration. Or something similar. That would, be, that would be the ideal picture, because then you can say to a person, well, how are you going to tempt him? Go to a person, he's got a million dollars. You say, listen, how about a million dollars? I'm going to offer you a hundred. Hey, how would you like that? person eating a 500 gram scotch filet steak. And you say to him, how would you like a soya hot dog? <laughs> hey, come on. Soya hot dog. It's boiled. Come on. Come on, you can have it with mashed potatoes. Why do you need those french fries? Yeah? It's not really, it's not really a temptation. So, so do you understand how fundamental, how crucial, when we say Martin Torah, connecting to the essence of the event, the process, with the essence of ourselves, is something which is a prerequisite for long-term, sustainable Jewish Torah fulfillment. Yeah? All on the same page. Let's read the words of Rabbeinu Yonah. So Solomon the king says, Moore Naim Yisamech Yisamech Leiv. The light of the eyes will make glad the heart. Shmua Toivo Tadashen Atzim. Good tidings will. allow the bones to enjoy. Oizen Shomas Toichachas Chaim Bekerev Chachomim Tolin The ear that hears criticism in regard to his life 
in the midst of the sages will you rest? Interesting, interesting verse in Mishlei. Seems to be that there's a lot of ready, trivial things that Shreem Amalek is talking about. Seems to be saying, he's saying something like, well, when things are bright and light, so then it cheers you up. Why is this a men? He says, you know, yellow is a happy color. <laughs> Good news makes you feel great. I thought good news would make me feel really depressed. No, you told me it makes me feel good. Whoa! Chidush! Says the Rabbeinu Yonah. Anyone who is wise of heart should know. Why is Shreem HaMelech composing these useless words in the midst of in the midst of guidelines of life? And not only, you know, he's, he's, he's praised as being wiser than all men. So he goes on to explain. This is how I like to resolve it. When we say that light cheers up the heart, the eye, so let's discuss the eye. The eye is a powerful, powerful part of the anatomy. Because the eye facilitates that we can have access to the external world and see the variety of colors and sights which can impact us in a very positive way. That's the eye. But the ear has a greater role to play. The ear has a capacity to gladden, to inspire the bones. Now that's an expression that a bone is looked upon as a non-reactive part of the anatomy. It could be that your, your flesh feels, but your bones are static. They don't seem to have a a recept- a receptives, receptacles, receptors, receptors for pleasure. So when it says that the Shmur Toiva Tadash and Etzem, when the bones derive benefit from it, it means that the power, it's an analogy, the power of the ear to comprehend and then transform your inner state is even greater than that of the eye. We'll explore this further. He brings a proof from the words of the Gemara and Bava Kama that the ear is a more precious limb. So he starts up by discussing the first two points of this passage which seem to say good news makes you happy and bright sights are uh, encouraging. He explains, he starts to differentiate between the role of the eye and the role of the ear. And he says the ear has a greater role to play than the eye. 
We've spoken this, about this before, that the eye doesn't really have the capacity to receive. The eye influences. It's a mashpia, it's not a makabah. The eye projects, it doesn't receive. And the ear is the only real chance we have of receiving anything. Of getting something that we didn't have before. Example. We've given this example before, but why not? You have two people walking down the street. It's a busy street in the central business district of any major city. And one person is a architect and the other is a road engineer. He, he designs roads and he monitors traffic and how, it, how, how the size and the width and, and the flow of traffic in a given area. And you have this architect and this industrial and this road engineer walking down the sidewalk of a busy central part of the city. What they both will see will be radically different. The architect will see the different styles within the buildings. He'll date them. He may even know some of the names of the other architects that they were designed by. And as regards to the roads, he'll barely pay notice to the amount of lanes or the flow of traffic or where the traffic lights are situated. The road engineer, on the other hand, will have a completely in-touch sense of exactly the way the roads are working, how wide they are, where the traffic lights are. But you won't really know what kind of buildings are around because we see what we are. So that means that we don't see something new. What we already are, we impose on the world around us. And if next to them was working a fashion designer, so he would be looking into the windows of the shops, looking at the new fashions. And neither of the above two would even see what was in the windows of the shops. And if next to them was walking an anthropologist, he'd be focused on the different interactions between the people in the situation. He wouldn't see the roads, nor the buildings, nor the shop windows. And if next to them was walking a watchmaker, he'd be focused on the different kinds of watches that people were, were wearing. And the only thing he'd see outside of him is if there'd be a big clock. He'd say, oh, I wonder how they got that big clock. In other words, we see what we want to see. We see what we are. We see what we are. We don't see what the world has to give us. We see what we are. So therefore, our sight is not a makabal. It doesn't receive. It pushes on. It projects. It's not a receiver. It's a projector. You're with me, Eitan. You don't see. What are you? What do you see when you walk down the road? What are you? What is? Who is this person that you are? Sorry? Depends how it depends how, how how sharply defined the person's being is. What do you shiva bocha see? Shiva bocha. What do they see when they when they when they walk down the road? They don't. They don't. They don't. They, 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 what the shiva bocha sees when he walks down the road is all the things that he's not seeing. I'm not looking at that. I'm not looking at that. That's what he sees. It's an interesting thing. If you want a person, people speak about watching where your eyes go. So I can assure you, if you go out of the yeshiva and you want to guard your eyes, one thing will definitely happen. You will look at all the wrong things. No question. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. 
You will find any attractive woman in a 50 mile radius and you will spot her out. And you look at it and you think, oh, I shouldn't be looking there. Because when you decide to go out into the road not looking at, at attractive women, the decision you've made is, I'm out there and the focal point of mine is attractive women. The topic is not to look at them, but what's on your mind is attractive women. So what's going to happen? You're going to see attractive women. You walk with a person, now you should have a bocha, and whatever it is, you'll see. He's chilled. So sometimes people think they're being from, they're really being crum. Use the word for crooked. Just because you're from it doesn't mean you're not crummer. Do you understand? Classic example of how being a little bit from it makes you a little bit crummer. Okay? So you have to understand, but... So what do you have in your mind then? How should you walk down the road? Become an architect. Become a road engineer. If you really want to get into it, become a bonsai tree grower. Bonsai trees... Do, do you have experience with bonsai trees, Hoppenstein? Of course. that one was. Bonsai trees are amazing because you take a tree and you train it to be little. Right? The bonsai tree is a normal tree, correct? It's a normal tree. They're just growing in the ground and you can train it to, so that it produces everything in miniature. And you can even get it to, to produce a miniature fruit. It's the most phenomenal thing. But in training your bonsai, you have to really get into trees. You have to understand them, you have to understand their personalities, you understand which way they're growing and how to make them deeper. You have to train your tree, you have to be a proper chinuch on your tree. But the truth is, once you've, once you've had a bit of bonsai experience, you'll walk down the road and you'll just be almost overstimulated by the personalities of the trees that you meet. <laughs> I'm absolutely serious. I, I've met, in, since I've gained this awareness, I've met some really, really big character trees. <laughs> you get these trees that you can see they had a rough, rough, rough upbringing, and only later in their life do they manage to straighten things out. And then you get to the trees that their mama started off glorious, and then who knows what happened, but things went somewhat awry and all crooked. And then you get these olive trees, which are just like a whole story. And they're kind of their, their, their trunks, which tell this fable of how they... It's just astonishing. You can just sit there and, I mean, you shouldn't talk to them in a public forum. But... <laughs> so there, that's really what you should be looking at. Become, become a tree looker. Anyway, boys, we're going to have to stop short chat to be continued. in Hashem, tomorrow.